and get me going here and all right. As advertised, this is a, a sermon about Satan. Uh, um, I do want to say two things before I sort of launch into it. And the first one is, uh, Zach Rogers, I love you. And I prayed, as I said in my email, about whether or not we should truly do something different because of Opal. And I think you'll see and hear why I felt like God led me to stick with this, that we had planned. Know that our hearts are with you, that we are with you in every way. The, the turnout and the support has been phenomenal from this incredible family we just love you so much, Zach, and we're with you all the way, okay? So uh, the other thing that I want to say before I launch into a sermon about Satan is, is this kind of stuff can get weird fast, okay? So we're not going to get weird, okay? We're going to keep it simple stupid, which is to say we're going to keep it scriptural stupid, okay? You know what I mean? There is this way of going after the things of, you know, learning about the doctrine of Satan, if you will, learning about who he is and what he's about, and so on, that just gets kinky and kooky, and, and it's just logic upon logic, and it seems reasonable and everything else, but it ends up in a place that just isn't scriptural, bottom line. It isn't what the Bible has to say about it in the end. And that happens all the time in religion, right? People take things and they logic it out, and they take it to places that it's no longer biblical. Okay, so it happens. Now, the other end of the spectrum is, of course, that there's a lot of people that just don't believe that Satan is real at all, and, you know, you may be here, and you don't really know God, or you know God, but you just, it's just weird to come to church and hear a sermon about Satan, okay? So, I get it, all right? But there's an important thing that's going on right here, a really important thing, a deception that is actually not just in the world's minds, hearts, and imagination, but in ours. I want you to think about this for a second. I'm going to show a couple of images up here. I'm giving you a fair warning. If you think certain images shouldn't be shown in church, good time to close your eyes when I show the images. I'll give you a warning, okay? This is not anything bad, so don't worry about it. But, you know, it's kind of weird, okay? But the bottom line is I want to show you the popular image of who Satan is. It, it really boils down. There's a lot of different ways. But it really kind of boils down into two basic camps. When you think about the popular imagination of who Satan is, and by the way, this is most Christians' perception too, at least in some degree. And so the first one would look something like, uh, just a sec, that, okay? You know, just, just, you know, the guy with the horns and the red and the tail and, you know, and, and the thing about it is this is evil incarnate, right? This is, the, this is the, every bad thing that happens, it comes from him and it's just evil and he's just about destroying things. He's about ruining things. He's about, really, it boils down to this image, this popular conception boils down to a, an image of Satan that says this about him. What he's all about is just to destroy the world. He's just out to destroy. Fire, just burn it up the whole nine yards, Okay? Can I just say something? Ironically, that's actually what God's intending to do. So just keep that in mind, okay? But the bottom line is, I, that's the popular conception. Now, the other one boils down to something like this, okay? This is, you know how far back I had to go to find an image I could show in church that showed temptation and sexuality and all that kind of stuff? I mean, look at how old that movie is, okay? And, and now we laugh at it, but in that day, that was a risque poster, Okay? And the bottom line is that's the way that we think about these things, right? And when we think about this image of Satan, what it is is what he is is he's just a tempter. What, all he cares about is that you don't do the things of God and you do do these base animal instinct things. There's this higher way of being and then there's this lower instinctual base level sexual. And it's not just sexual, but it's, you know, gluttony and greed and just all of this just overage, this Babylonian, Babylonian, you know, this Babel type 
spirit, okay? And so what we get out of this one is, is that, that you know, Satan is either this person who's out to destroy the whole world, or he's out to just make us all just slaves to our animal selves. See what I mean? That's the popular image of who Satan is. And so what we do is we say, we see evidences of this, and so we go one more last image that's tough, and this one, you know, if, you, if you're sensitive, close your eyes now, and then you can tell somebody later what it was. But I just want to show you, when we see images like this, we say Satan. See, this is that destroy image, right? This is Auschwitz, okay? And so this is that, you know, and this is horrible. And we say, see, there it is. That's Satan. He's just out to destroy everything. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to spare you the other one, but if we were to do just a sort of a, you know, we understand that there's something that restrains, and every once in a while he sort of pokes his head out, that's how we think about it, and there certainly is. Do understand in all of these perceptions and images, there's a lot of truth in them. There's also an error that is absolutely critical, and that's what we're going after today. But do understand the best truth is always the one with the, I mean, the best lie is always the one with the most truth. Okay. So we think of that image of him that's out to destroy in something like the, you know, the concentration camps. But then we come to, like, the porn industry. And we think there again, that's Satan, right? I mean, that's how we think. And it's not just Christians, but the whole world thinks. Not the whole world, but, you know, but you get the point. When people think about Satan, they think, yeah, that's that degradation and that going to a lowest, basest, you know, animalistic, something, it's not noble, it's not right. We all have a sense of it, even though, you know, popular culture tries to make it out to be okay. Right? All right. Now, here's what the problem is. If you go to Scripture, and you look at what Scripture has to say about who Satan is, it actually isn't that red guy at all, and it's not at all. Yes, Satan is a tempter, but we're going to see today that actually who he is is, is virtually the opposite of that base instinct thing. See, what I'm saying is, is that Satan has actually deceived the world in such a way that the, it's actually going to make it easier for him to become the one that we worship. Because when he turns out not to be that caricature, he turns out to be something the opposite of the caricature, then it's all that easier for us to say, oh, well, then you're good, and I'll worship you. See it? Now, it's not just an end time thing that we do this for, because I want you to understand, even right now, in our daily lives, there's an image of Satan, I mean, an image of God, excuse me, in the world that actually is who Satan is. <laughs> but it looks like God. And people, even Christians, think of God in this way. That's where we're going. And we're going there with biblical warrant because as Paul says, I have done this so that you, we may not be taken advantage of by Satan. For you are not ignorant of his schemes. I'm going to write this in modern English the way that Paul would have to write it if he were around our churches today because there's so little being taught about this and there's so little understanding of it. He would have to say, I I'm doing this because we shouldn't be ignorant of it, but we are. So I'm going to show you something so that you're not ignorant any longer. That would be the sort of modern paraphrase to fit our current context. So that's where we're headed. Who's our prayer? Oh, Roger Maddox, that's awesome. Roger, you, yeah, you've just been amazing. Uh, 
you know, stepping up in all the things and just the eldering that you do, you're awesome. And by the way, you look good. You lost a lot of weight. Look great. <laughs> and with that, I'll pray. <laughs> Father God, we thank you for today, Lord. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you especially for your love for us, God, your children. God, we just pray for Kurt. We pray, God, that you would speak through him, that you would speak truth through him, God, and prepare our hearts, our minds, our ears to hear truth today, God, about Satan, about who he is and who he is not. And God, we just pray that you would impact, uh, impact us with this truth, that our thinking would be changed, Amen. that our understanding would be changed, God, into truth, into your knowledge, your wisdom, God, so that we can see the, uh, the ways of our enemy, of our souls, God, and that we would be able to resist, God, in, a, in, in the right way, in the way that you direct us by your Holy Spirit. And Father God, I just pray for, uh, I just pray for the church in Jamaica today, God. Amen. I pray, God, for, uh, for truth there, too, God, that your love, your truth, your hope would be alive and well, and that lives would be being changed. Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in our series on Revelation, demystifying the book of Revelation, and, and last week we did Babylon chapter 17 and 18, the, the stuff about it, and then the fall of it in 18, and so on. And so this is where we are, and I just need to do a little bit of catching up so that everybody knows where we are today, okay? In chapters 12 and 13, we have the unholy trinity revealed, Okay? It is in chapter 12, it's all about the dragon, Satan, and we see certain things about him, and, and God is teaching us things, and in that symbolic, poetic language, we're learning things about what he's doing, and why, and how, and so on. But then, in 13, what happens is, is that Satan raises up an unholy trinity. In the Antichrist is at the beginning of chapter 13, verses 1 to 10, and what happens is, the Antichrist, the beast from the sea, comes up, and this is one that is like Christ. The world perceives him as being a Christ-like figure. Okay, he's saved, he actually dies and raises again, the whole nine yards. Then we get the false prophet, the beast from the earth that comes up in the second half of, of chapter 13. So watch, see, in the Trinity itself, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit does what? Points to the Son, leads us to the Son. What does the Son do? Leads us to the Father. See? That's the same pattern that's being shown here. The false prophet leads people to the beast from the sea, the Antichrist. And then the Antichrist is leading people to Satan, the dragon. Okay? So what we have is this unholy trinity. And then in chapter 17, where we learn a lot more about the beast, as we did last week and a few weeks ago, and you'll have to listen to other sermons to pick up what the beast is and so on. We're not going into it today. But, but here's what happens at the beginning of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke. Come, I'll show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who sits on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. So he carried me away in the spirit to a desert. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names, had seven heads and ten horns, and we understand that that's those kingdoms, those empires that have been throughout the world that have persecuted God's people, okay? The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet. Remember, this is poetic language 
trying to describe something in a way that is efficient and effective. It's, it's describing things as if it was an image, and it is an image, but it means something. Poetry, okay? So the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She had a gold cup in her hand filled with everything vile and with the impurities of her prostitution on her forehead. Think about it. Sexual immorality, isn't that image of Satan that we've got? That licentious behavior, that wealth, that Babylon spirit that we get. And so sure enough, on her forehead, a cryptic, mysterious name, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the vile things of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk on the blood of the saints, on the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. Doesn't that sound like Satan? Right? I, you know, drunk on the blood of the saints, doing promiscuity, trying to destroy the whole nine yards. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Okay? So this is that Babylon. This is, Babylon is this city that sits, you know, the empires raise up, but there's always a great city in those empires that concentrates the power. And it's the place where power is so concentrated that it corrupts, perverts. So that's the image of what Babylon is. And so when we think of Babylon, we naturally think of her as, this is kind of this image, and again, it doesn't, this isn't what it looks like, but I just want to show you something in this image. And they, whenever we try and do these spiritual things and put them into imagery, I always think they look totally hokey and corny, and I hate them. Okay? I mean, that's just silly. But, but the bottom line is, is there was something about that image that I wanted to show you, and that was there's a little bit of a sense of, the woman, Babylon, the city that's over the empire, is like a woman riding a horse, right? The woman's in control. So that makes Babylon out to be a stand-in, a synonym, a, a prototype of Satan. So that we could say something like this, which is the unholy trinity plus one. You know, you go to a wedding and you get an invite with a plus one. You know, okay, so there's Satan and this is his plus one. And here it is, the woman riding on the beast from the sea. See, I mean, you know, her, her licentious behavior, her, you know, just the destruction, all of the things. This is that image, right? Well, then we get to verse 15. The angel said to me, the waters where the prostitute is ruling represent masses of people of every nation and language. This is the people of the earth. The scarlet beast and his ten horns all hate the prostitute. The horse hates the rider. The, if she's a plus one, they like her. They don't hate her. And they don't want to strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her remains with fire. This doesn't make any sense. This is that moment where, <laughs> right, the record skips. <laughs> Did you get it? Okay, the record's skipping. Okay, right? It's like you're going along. The song is playing just fine. You get where it's going. All of a sudden it goes, <laughs> what happened I don't understand this so what we're going to do today is we we looked at it last week but we're going to look at it in more detail this week in more depth and we're going to come to an understanding of what this hatred is about and it starts here I want you to start thinking of Satan as having two movements a first goal and an ultimate goal what's his first goal what's the first thing that he's about okay well, right here at the beginning. The servant was clever, more clever than any wild animal God had made. He spoke to the woman. Do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the servant, not at all. We can eat from the trees of the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, don't eat from it. Don't even touch it or you'll die. She added something right there. She lost the battle right there, but that's another sermon. Okay? 
The serpent told the woman, you won't die. God knows the moment you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You're going to be just like God. What's his first movement? To get you to not do the things of God. <laughs> there's, a, there's a way that is set before all men, all people. A way that is God and life and a way that is death. Separation from God who is life with a capital L. Got it? So there's two ways set before, and what's happening right now is she's got this two ways being set before. You can either obey God who said don't eat it, or you can go ahead and eat it. But if you do, you're separated. Death. Okay, so what happens? The woman saw the tree look like good eating, realized she could get what get out of it, that she'd know everything. She took and ate the fruit, gave some to her husband. He ate. Idiot. Immediately, the two of them did see what's really going on. They saw themselves as naked. They were exposed. There was something that they didn't know existed. They now knew that it existed, and they went, oh, my God. Okay? They were in big trouble. Okay? But Satan's first goal was accomplished. Separation. They're kicked out of the garden. Okay? So they're separated. Now, God, of course, wins in the end. And it's going to come back around in an incredible way. But remember this concept. The first movement of Satan is to pull people from God. To get them to do anything other than God. That's just the goal. Think about it. All the way through Scripture, the few times that we do see Satan in any kind of a detail, Job, for example, what's he doing? He's trying to get him to curse God, <laughs> right? Look, does he worship you for nothing? Look at all the stuff that you've given him. He's not going to worship you if you take all the stuff away from him. And sure enough, Job comes really close to proving Satan right. Okay? So bottom line, he's trying to get him to not worship God, not be after God, be against God, be choosing something different than God. We see the same thing with Jesus in the wilderness, right? Jesus goes into the wilderness. He's fasted 40 days. Hey, eat that there rock. Turn it into bread. You're hungry. Eat it. What's Jesus' response? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. See, what he's doing is he's saying, I'm not going to choose that path. I'm going to choose God's path. And God's path says, no, don't do that. But once again, what's Satan trying to do? First movement. Just get him to do anything other than God's stuff. Something else. Remember, we always define sin around here in an interesting way. I actually had a guy leave the church over it because he said, I don't think you ever call sin, sin. You don't just say it's bad. And what I always say is, you're right, because I think it's much bigger than bad. And I think that that's a superficial uh, and not very helpful understanding of sin. Here's what sin is. Anything that isn't going after God. Sin is stupidity. It's choosing to go some other way than God. And sometimes that looks very harmless. It doesn't mean it is. I always just say what sin is is going any other way than God. That's what sin is. Okay? Choosing your own way, any other way, any other thing. Okay. So bottom line, immediately they did see what was going on. They were naked. We've seen all the way through that Satan is trying to pull people away. First movement of Satan. Pull people away from doing things God's way. Sin. Got it. What's the second movement? It's actually, it's not hidden at all. We're going to see how obvious it is. But again, remember the popular conceptions? And remember just the way that we think about things. And if you see it, it's almost like this undercurrent that goes through the whole of the Bible and then shows up clearly in Revelation. Now, it actually shows up clearly all the way through. But let me show you what the second movement is. 
Remember in the garden what the problem was. Satan says, you're going to be just like God. That's the temptation. That's the thing. That's the thing he's hanging his hat on. What is that about? Where does that come from? I'm going to read to you a scripture right now in Ezekiel. And there are some scholars who will say this isn't really about Satan, but I think they're just patently wrong, and I'll show you why. But they are right about one thing, and that is this scripture is about a king, the king of Tyre, one of these figures that becomes incredibly wealthy and corrupt and perverted and so on. But look at the nature of what the corruption and the perversion goes to. Look at where it goes. It doesn't go to him being a, 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 a base instinct or a destroyer. It actually goes to an opposite place than either one of those. Here's where it goes. Oh, well, I'm sorry, this is Tower of Babel, and this is, this is us. Again, this is another evidence. I'm sorry, I just missed this. They said, come and let us build for ourselves a city with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. We're exalting ourselves. Satan said, what in the garden? You're going to be like God. Here's this spirit manifesting again. Now, here's this other one. God's message came to me. Son of man, tell the prince of Tyre, this is what God the master said. Your heart is proud, going around saying, I'm a God. I sit on God's divine throne, ruling the sea. You, a mere mortal, not even close to being God, a mere mortal trying to be God. Your sharp intelligence made you world wealthy. You piled up gold and silver in your banks. You used your head well, worked good deals, made a lot of money. But the money's gone to your head. I love the message sometimes. Swelled your head. What a big head. <laughs> Therefore, God the Master says, because you're acting like a God, pretending to be a God, I'm giving you a warning, fair warning. I'm bringing strangers down on you, the most vicious of all the nations. They'll pull their swords and make hash of your reputation for knowing it all. They'll puncture the balloon of your God pretensions. Um, I'm sorry, I went to the Avengers on Friday night. And I'm not saying you should ever go to the Avengers. I kind of don't like the comic book stuff. It's just what they make. And it is visually stunning and so on and all this kind of stuff. But there is there's some very, very funny moments in it. And one of the funniest moments in the thing, I'm going to ruin it for you, but it's all right. You'll still like it. <laughs> the Incredible Hulk is one of these figures in the thing. And the Hulk is just this out of control thing. And there's this Satan figure who's actually much more like the Satan we're talking about today than the popular culture kind. He's actually, actually I was watching it, I was going, wow, this is pretty interesting how much they're tracking with what the revelation in this sermon is about who Satan actually is. But there's one point where Satan comes incredible Hulk, and the Hulk is, and he says something about, have you seen it? Uh, but the Hulk says something about, you know, he says, the, the, the satanic guy says, you know, you dumb blah, 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 you know, whatever. He's, you know, I'm a god. And the Hulk just looks at him, and then he takes him, and just like a rag doll, he just goes, quack, 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 quack. <laughs> And it's just so shocking in the context of it. it. You just burst out laughing. And that's a lot what God is doing here with the king of Tyre. Right? He's just going, really? You're a God here? Whack, 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 whack. Okay? So what he does is he says, look, they're going to pull their swords, make a reputation. They're going to bring you down from your self-made pedestal and bury you in the deep blue sea. Will you protest to your assassins? You can't do that. I'm a God. To them, you're a mere mortal. They're killing a man, not a god. And you'll die like a stray dog killed by strangers. Because I said so. This is the decree of God, the master, the real God. See what I mean? 
Now, remember, though, what the problem was. Was it the baser instinct stuff? Was it the destroy everything stuff? No, the, the impulse was the same one with Eve, the same one with us at the Tower of Babel. Make yourself a god. See? And so now we see the spirit behind it. And this is where I say, those that say this isn't about Satan, they just don't read the words. You were the model of perfection. These are just the next words. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden. He's, not, he's talking now about the spirit that's behind the king of Tyre. Not that there isn't a thing in us made in his image that doesn't go for it all on our own. But do understand, it's also being satanically egged along in the garden, right? Oh, no, when you eat of it, you're going to be like God, right? You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you. Anointed you. What's that mean? What's that mean? Not quite, actually. That's holy. Anointed means empowered. How does God empower us? He gives us his presence. It's him. He's the one that's powerful. Anointing is God coming upon you to do his will. This is an angel who is around God. This angel is favored by God, loved by God. And God has anointed him. He has empowered him. He has given a part of himself to that angel. And what has been the result? We'll see it in two seconds. But basically, that angel exalts himself and says, I'm like God. Now worship me. Let me just do one thing, though, before we do that. As the mighty angelic guardian. See, he was ordained and anointed to be a mighty angelic guardian. Which, by the way, the word here is cherub. Now, that's an angel, and this is the correct word, but we can't use it anymore in English. And the reason why was because in Italy some years ago, there was a term for the innocent babies that died. And somehow, some painter got that mixed up with the word cherub, so that what cherubs mean to us today is this. Little babies that are about Valentine's Day in love. Okay? That is not the image that's, that Scripture gives of cherubs whatsoever. Cherubs are fierce, mighty, guardian angels. They're the ones with the different faces in Ezekiel that move every direction. They're the ones that surround the throne. It is as if they are the closest beings to His holiness, guarding others from coming too close to His holiness, lest they be consumed. So this cherub, this angel, this guardian angel that is Lucifer, that has been anointed as one who is very, very close to God. You see it? Which is why he can raise himself up and say, hey, you had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce, now this is, this is tying it back into to tire too, okay? But it's the spirit of it. What is commerce? It's the stuff in which you traffic. What is, what's the stuff in which angels traffic? 
access God. This is what he's trafficking in. Led you to violence. What's violence? Offense. This is an offense. And you sinned. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, almighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor, this desire to be God. So I threw you to the ground and exposed you. See it? Your heart was filled with pride. I'm like God. We're seeing that in the garden. Temptation. You're going to be like God. We're seeing that in our own self, in the Tower of Babel. We're seeing that in the King of Tyre. We're seeing this thing to raise up to, all right? Which is exactly what Isaiah says when he said, for you said to yourself, and this is again about a king, but also excess meaning. It's clearly talking about the spirit that's behind the king influencing. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will above God's stars above his other angels. I'm going to be higher than all the other angels. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and I will be like the most high. This is what Satan is trying to do. Now, I just want you to ponder that for a second. Does this sound like the guy who's trying to destroy everything? Does this sound like the guy who all he's trying to do is get you to do your baser instincts? In fact, let me take it one step deeper to you. Remember I said at the end of the book, the fullness of this impulse that's in Satan to raise up and say that he's God, we see this at the end of the book very clearly because here's what it says. There was war in heaven. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found them in heaven. Did you remember? We just read it in Ezekiel, cast down. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. It was thrown down to the earth. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. Those are those empires, but this beast. On the horns were ten diadems, those ten kings that are to come. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. We're not ignorant of his ways. His first impulse is to pull us away from God. What's his second impulse? To get us to worship him. Do you see it? Isn't this exactly what happened to Jesus when he was being tempted in the wilderness? Being tempted to go away from God, but then Satan gets down to the crux of it and says this, then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and the authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine. Jesus didn't argue with him. It's true. They were given by Adam and Eve. And I give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will but worship me. Now I want to say something here that's really important. This is, this is good training in how not to get sideways on these kinds of things. We could now begin to speculate about why it is that Satan wants people to worship him. But you know what the Bible doesn't do? It doesn't tell us clearly why. We could speculate easily, and, and we could come up with all kinds of little reasons why. But here's what the Bible does. 
all the time with spiritual things. It tells us that they're there. It makes it clear to us that they're huge, that they're huger than we can even begin to understand. And so it's just telling us what we need to know. Need to know basis. And we know everything that we need to know. And here's all we need to know about Satan. He wants our worship. Why? It doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter. That's where you get into error. You start speculating why, and then you come up with other plans about why not, and how not, and how to resist, and da-da-da, and you end up getting all unbiblical. But the bottom line is, is all we need to know is something that the Bible makes very clear. Satan is after our worship. But here, now we've seen something very clear, haven't we? Here's what he's not after. Destroying the world. Remember that popular image? That's not actually what he's about. You know what else he's not about? Us just going into our baser instincts and becoming just, you know, slaves to our own sin and flesh. Why? Because those people won't be ruled by anybody. Those people don't worship anything but their pleasure. They don't worship Satan, which is what he wants. They just do whatever they want to do. They're unruly. They've cast off all restraints. That's how the Bible talks about them in Romans and other places. See, the problem is, if Satan's first movement is to get us to not follow God, but his second movement is to get us to worship, to follow him, he's got a big problem. Us. We're not very good at following anything. <laughs> right? We're quite bad at it. We're bad at worship. We're bad at truly following. We proved it in the garden. We've been proving it ever since. You love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and still, if you get through 24 hours without violating that love in some fashion, you're lucky for that day. Right? But surely not too. We're just not good at following. We're not good at worshiping. We're not good at actually giving ourselves over in fullness. We're just not. So how does Satan then get our worship? That becomes the big question, and let me just make it clear to you. The scarlet beast and the ten horns hate the prostitute. Why do they hate the prostitute? Because the prostitute is us, unruly, un, you know, hurting cats. See? That's what the problem is. That's why he hates them. And so what God does is, God puts a plan into the beast, the dragon, and the, and the false prophet's mind, a plan that will carry out God's purposes. They agree to give their authority to the scarlet beast, and so the words of the God will be fulfilled. That's talking about the ten kings get a plan. The kings of the earth say, we're going to give over to the beast. But look at the nature of what's actually happening here. We keep talking about these two impulses, the red dragon that wants to destroy everything and the sort of porn pleasure principle, base instinct. How would you get people to worship that are like herding cats? You know a really effective way to get people in line? Have them go through devastation. Particularly if what they were experiencing before was so much excess that they themselves even know they were getting kind of perverted. How many times in the world's history have we watched an empire rise up that came from actually pretty good ground? 
right? It was people being very moral, being very right about things. You know, America would be an example of this. And, and you know, we worked the land and we worshiped God and, and we did things and we marshaled it and his blessings came and we became wealthy and prosperous. And as I always say, nothing's harder to survive than prosperity. Persecution is much easier to survive. Prosperity is the subtle one. Prosperity is the one where power corrupts absolute, power corrupts absolutely, where we just get a little twist and a little turn, and suddenly we're just kind of walking away, and we're kind of drifting away, and this thing is happening. You see it? And then what happens? You get to a certain pinnacle. Rome, the city of Babylon, Rome, London, all these places. And what happens is there comes a moment of time of their destruction. Now, London was a city that was against God, so I shouldn't have put that in. But Rome, Babylon, these empire cities, they were utterly destroyed by God. And guess what? The people of the world that watched that said, on the one hand, if they were being truly, if they were being truly truthful with themselves, which we never are, okay? But if we were being truly truthful with ourselves, here's what we would say. I kind of wanted all that. <laughs> you know what I mean? All that wealth and all that ability to do things, and I wouldn't have been nearly as bad as they were. You know, I would have enjoyed myself, but, you know, I wouldn't have done what they did. But, you know, I kind of had a lust in my heart, a covetousness of the stuff that they had. Right? So let's be honest about it, okay? But when they were destroyed, yeah, they deserved it. Because <laughs> they were corrupt. They were perverted. They were bad. And they were hurting the world. The world was going into a bad place that wasn't a better place socially. The secular person will come along and they'll say this. The secular person will say, the image, the, the God and Satan are not real concepts. They're things that we need in order to restrain our animal nature and our desire for power and to get over on other people. In other words, in order to be social, we need to cap our id, to use a Freudian term, that, that, un, that unconscious urge, Right? Actually, if we have the popular conception of the one who's trying to destroy and the sexual thing, we got it. But we're actually going to a very, very different spirit here than that, to where that argument is no longer valid. Because actually what we're going to is something else entirely different. We're going to a place that says something along this line. We do get when kingdoms fall. I'm going to give you an example here in the real world. This is the Shah of Iran, okay? Now look at the gold, look at the guilt, look at the, can you just see him standing there saying in his heart, I'm like God, I'm a God. This is the gold and the guilt, the, I mean the guild, the, 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 what, what's the term I'm looking for? Guilting, isn't that, is that what they call it? Okay, G-I-L-T, right? Okay. But, but you see what they've got is, is th this is this finery and this whole thing. Now, now watch what happens. Here's what should happen. See, they were actually being raised up. This was, a, this was a lot of wealth that was actually raising the entire ship of the country. And so you would think that the raising middle class would say this. You, you're too big for your britches. We're going to cast you off, like say England did the queen or the king, right? And we'll let you be a titular head, but, you know, really we're going to rule ourselves. But that's not actually how the world typically goes, is it? What actually ends up happening is this power gets to a certain place to where people are willing to give up their own freedoms 
in order to overcome the Ayatollah Khomeini. Think about where people went from in Iran. They had a democracy, essentially. They had all, all kinds of freedoms. They had all kinds of progress. They had all kinds of things going on. And they gave it all away to what? Somebody who would clamp down. Now, in some ways, this is a bad illustration. Let me go to the better one. When we see a Rome fall, and we know that she deserved it, because of her immoralities and her destruction of the saints. What's our reaction always? Fundamentalist. It's not, it's not, it's a pendulum swing. It goes from licentiousness to law. That's where the pendulum swings to. We gladly in the middle of falling apart, we gladly give our freedoms over to someone who will bring law. Peace. Stop this madness. Are we giving up things? Yes, we are. But we will worship the person who's taking away our freedom. Because we need it. See? We need peace. Now, what is the image that we're seeing in Revelation? before we see Satan rising to the place of worship. The seals, the trumpets. We're seeing the world falling apart horribly. We're seeing people in desperate straits. We're seeing people crying out, and all of a sudden someone comes, and they come not as a red-horned-tailed devil, and not as a pleasure palace. but they come as a fundamentalist. They come as a religious figure, false prophet, antichrist. This isn't president and cabinet, secular concept. When things are falling apart, when the world is literally caving down on our heads and we're crying out to God, what are we crying out for? Someone who can stop all of that from happening. Somebody who's more powerful than the governmental structures, which turned out to be a lot more fleeting than they thought we thought they were. Democracy itself is never, <laughs> it's always on the edge of teetering of its own destruction. It's not rights, it's responsibilities. And so that's the impulse that kicks in in us. And what happens is, is these things start to fall, and what we do is we gladly give ourselves over to a religious figure who will bring us his peace. And we will worship them. And that's exactly how he gets there. And when I say that this is it, these are Christian fundamentalists. Do you remember, you know John, right? John and James are walking with Jesus one day, and they're walking along, and this town says, we will not welcome you because you're going to Jerusalem and we're not Jewish and da-da-da. And John and James say to Jesus, should we call down fire on them? There's a good religious spirit, right? Shall we call down fire? What does Jesus say? You know not what spirit you're of. You don't get that there's something going on here. You see, we think of, we think of fundamentalism as, well, it's kind of like God, but it's, it's kind of like Christianity, only it's just, you know, it really is Christianity, but it's not the kind of Christianity that we would want. I'm here to tell you it's not Christianity because it isn't about Christ. It's about the law. Do you see it? 
Now, I can take even further on this because do remember the country that went through all of this. Israel was a country that got terribly blessed and got perverted in their blessings and their prosperity to the point that God had destroyed them completely by a place called Babylon. They went into Babylon. God miraculously brings them back. And when they come back, how do they come back? Secular? Of course not. They come back fundamentalist. Now, I want to be careful here. Pharisees and fundamentalists of modern age are not synonyms. But in this instance, we're making a parallel between them. And the parallel that we're making is they came back about the law. There's this story in John that is phenomenal. You all heard it before. It's the woman that the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious people, not the secular people, the religious people, they go and they get the adulterous woman, they bring her before Christ and they're testing him because they're saying, you know, we don't actually stone people for this. The law says to do it, but we don't actually do it. And if Jesus stones her, then he's going to be a schmuck. And if he doesn't stone her, then he clearly can't be God because God's the one that said the commandment to stone him. See? So they, got, they think they got him in the trap. So she comes before, by the way, they don't bring him, but hey, another sermon comes before, put her there, you know, fine. I get it. I know what the law is. I got it. He is without sin. Cast the first stone. Now, here's the way we read that story, because this way it's always told to us. Everybody then went home. That's not what actually happens. Read it. What happens is Jesus starts talking to him now, and he starts saying, this is who you are. You Pharisees, you people, remember who's talking to them. The God they say they worship is standing right in front of them, confronting them in ways that are opening their own eyes, or at least should be. But they are so locked into the law that they can't see the God that the law points to. And so what they do, so what happens is, he confronts him on this, he confronts him on this, he confronts him on this, and then finally comes around and he says, look, here's the bottom line. You guys are trying to kill me. Remember? They're trying to kill the woman. You guys are trying to kill me. Oh, you have a devil. We're not trying to kill you. Yes, you are. Which they did. And he says to them, you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now, understand the point that I'm trying to make here. That fundamentalist spirit that says, call down fire, is not God. I'm not saying that God can't be filled with wrath, but last week, here's what we saw. This is one of the most incredible revelations that we've had in this whole series. What we saw is when it comes down to wrath, God takes it upon himself and he does it himself. He doesn't allow anyone else to even stand when he pours out the balls. He does it. So I'm not saying God can't be wrath. What I'm saying is that his character, his nature, his attitude, his, 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 his everything about him is, it's that, that Da Vinci picture, right? Where God, he's not the angry God, he's the God who's got it reaching down and the angels are holding him back. Which, by the way, in, if you understand what that writing is about, is Jesus did come to be with us. The angels couldn't hold him back. He did come to be with Adam to save him. But he's reaching down, and Adam is reclined backwards with his arm just kind of almost out. See it? This is the, 
This is the thing. What we don't understand, what we need to understand is, is when we start thinking about Satan, when we want to understand who Satan is, Satan is the one that's about the rules. This is why things like this can happen. This is 9-11. That first shot. Was it secular people that did this? This, this shot right here, by the way, is unbelievable. Do you see it over to the left? Do you see the plane coming in? Look at that. I mean, we recoil in horror, and we see devil as in the one who's trying to destroy everything, but I want you to see who he really is because these guys thought that they were doing this in the name of God. They believe that with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They believe that with their own lives. They gave their lives to a lie. When Revelation said they will strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her remains with fire, do you have a better understanding of what that means now? Do you have a better understanding that what that means is, is that there is this spirit that comes over people to be about the law, thinking that that will bring about righteousness, and that that's what Satan actually is. He's not trying to destroy the world. He just thinks he can do it better than God can. He's just trying to rule it. And he thinks he knows how to get the cats in line. Bring them to a place that is so difficult that they gladly give up their freedoms. That they gladly give up who they are. To the one who's about the rules. Now, I told you in the very beginning, I said, see, there's a deception when we think of Satan as the one who's trying to destroy everything or the one who's just about perversion. Do you see what happens in the end? Satan reveals himself to be the one who's about the law. And I don't mean God's law necessarily. I just mean the rules and the regs. He's the one who's about enforcing goodness. The people of Israel come to God at one point in time and say, give us a king. Why? Because he's going to make us do it the right way. And God says, no, he won't. He'll just be worse. You guys will never come and worship me on your own. When, when Satan goes through this in the end, I, I just want us to see this picture. When he reveals himself to who he is, he's not going to be the scary guy or the pleasure palace guy. He's going to be the guy that looks like religion. He's going to be the guy that looks like he's bringing righteousness to the world. Appearing as an angel of light. Do you see it? Now, I don't know about you, but is that a surprise to you? I hope it is. And maybe I don't hope it is. Maybe I hope you already knew this, and everybody knew this, and I'm the only one that discovered it <laughs> this week. But now I want us to take us, not from the end times, but I want us to take us right into our lives today, because I want you to just get a hold of this last principle here, and here's how it goes. This last idea, a principle would be a bad word right now, right? So this last idea. What's God trying to do? We know what Satan's been trying to do. He's trying to get worship. What's God trying to do? 
He's trying to raise us up to be in deeper relationship with himself. See? Now, Satan cannot get us in line except that we give ourselves over to it because of the catastrophe which he's healing. But do understand, when we get to God, we've got, how does God get our worship? He does what Satan cannot do. A creative act. He makes us new. He changes us. And, and watch. See, remember that anointed angel? God wants to give us more of himself. He is Geppetto. Having made Pinocchio and loving Pinocchio and wanting Pinocchio to wanting to be in more relationship with Pinocchio. And the way to do that is not for God to lower himself, although Jesus did initially, but it is ultimately to raise up his creation. But he's got this problem that he already showed to us. When he gives us a part of himself, what happens to us is what? We build a tower or, or we eat an apple or we go out and we make ourselves a god. See what I mean? We're the same thing. We don't even need Satan to do it. We'll do it ourselves. But what if you're the kind of person that's come to an end of yourself and realized that there's no hope for you? That you keep doing things in a way that you know is not the better way. That you know that God has a better way. That you know God has this incredible thing. That you know God wants this thing. Or that you know that there's just, even if you don't know God, there just is this life that is out there that is better than the life that I'm leading. And somehow in myself, I can't ever seem to get there. And so at one moment in time, I finally come to an end of myself. And I say unto God, help. And from that cry comes a response that makes me new. God gives a part of himself to me, but it came from me in need. And because of that, I do not raise up and say, hey, now I'm like, God, worship me. What I do is I say, you helped. <laughs> I was in straits, and now that I become saved, I realized how much more in straits I even was than I understood. And I am amazed at the gift that you have given to raise me, to help me, to make me love you. The difference between Satan and God is as clear and as simple as the law and a person. Right there. This thing about God is all about a person. And it's about being in relationship with that person. Now, let me get to, let me get to meddling, okay? Preaching and meddling. The truth is, a lot of us in this room still have a Christian walk that is inexorably tied up with regulation, law, rule. We don't think of it that way. We think we're just trying to be righteous. I'll give you a little example. When I want to go on my walk. I've been having a lot of trouble getting on my walks lately. And mostly it's because I'm just tired. Right? And I wake up and I, it's not the first thing I want to do. So I go ahead and start doing some emails or doing something else. And then the, the day captures me and I don't get out on my walk. I hate it. And every time I do get out on my walk, I walk out and I go, oh, God, thank you. This is so life-giving. This is so awesome. But there's a discipline in there. Well, wait a minute, Kurt. That discipline, that's a regulation. That's a rule, right? See how gray the line can be? How subtle the difference can be? Now, it turns out not to be subtle at all. Because the fact of the matter is if I'm going out on my walk in order to fulfill a requirement of God and check it off on my little box as if I've done the thing that makes me righteous, if that was the spirit of it, then damned with me. Because that's what it is. It's a religious spirit that is the best lie of all because it's so close to the truth. 
You're going on your walk. Right? Look at how much truth is in it. And yet it's the thing that's killing me. But I go on my walk and I find this person and I'm so happy to be in his presence. And there's no comparison between the two. And if my walk ever feels like it's that other thing, I'd stop walking. And I'd start figuring out how to get back into his presence. And so that's what we're going to do together. We're going to help each other do something. I want to tell you right now, I have no idea whether or not this is going to work. The staff is going to freak out when I say what I'm about to say. Okay? Because, because I'm going to say something and we're going to try and do something which I don't think I think there's a very good chance we won't actually succeed at, okay? Just telling you. There is one way that we'll succeed, and that's if every person in this place actually says, you know what, I'll be part of this. Can I, could you hand me that survey? In your packets, and ushers, thank you for coming forward. I want you to, I want you to pull this out. Now watch, here's what we're going after. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Now listen to the message's way of saying this, because this is beautiful. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. This is, I think this is the single best translation that Eugene Peterson does right here. This is the thing that makes his translation worth it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I just, that's so beautiful. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Lean. Learn, uh, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Do you want that? Well, and we're going we're gonna to give us a chance of getting to that. So pull this out. If you need one of these, raise your hands. If you need a pen, raise your hands. Everybody needs one. Ushers, thank you very much. Okay? Everybody needs one of these. Okay? And everybody needs a pen. And this is really complicated what we're doing. Here's one thing that I've learned. When you're trying to raise people up and mentor them, there's two types of people in the world that do not work with one another. You have some people in the world that are touchy-feely, intuitive in their nature, right? Like when I talk about feeling God's presence or Him talking to me, man, that's as real to me as me talking right now, okay? But there's a lot of people that sit in here and they go, I just don't experience God that way. I did that touchy-feely thing, that intuitive thing, that just is not my personality, it's not my makeup. And here's the deal, touchy-feely people always want to turn non-touchy-feely people into touchy-feely people. And it doesn't work because they're not. It truly is a different way of encountering and experiencing God that is legitimate. So here's the first thing we're going to do on our little survey here. You do not have to hand this in, but would you do me the favor of filling it out? And then if you feel like it's a good idea at the end, you can hand it in with the offering, okay? All right? Here's what we're going to do. The first one is, is are you touchy-feely or not? Right here, okay? I tend to be able to feel things. I don't really feel things. That's what I mean, touchy-feely, okay? Intuitive. So write down, thanks guys, and there should be more packets and all that. They're, they're scrambling, they'll get, they'll get it there. So I want you to t write down, put your name in there, put your contact info. I tend to be able to feel things, I don't really feel things, that's number one. Now go to number two. I know what it is to be in his presence in my life or walk. It doesn't matter if you're a touchy-feely person or not. Here's the issue. When I talk about the intimate presence of God, 
and in your walk and your life. When, when, when Eugene Peterson translated as a lightness of walk, is that you? Do you feel like your walk is rules and regs, or do you feel like your walk is personhood? Okay? Oh, boy, did we really not have enough slips? Uh, is, is there a few more coming? If there's extras in packets, just there's a bunch of people over here that don't have and so on. So help ushers, thank you guys, okay? Now, look, I know what it is to be in his presence in my life and walk. I don't know what it is to be in his presence and walk. In other words, this is confidential, okay? We're going to be careful with this. But if you're just saying, you know what, when you talk about my religion being about rules and regs and something other than the person of Christ, I can relate to that more than I can relate to it being about the person. Everybody in here that knows Christ does know him. But you get what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your walk. What's the prevalent posture in your walk? Okay? So which one is it? Choose one. Then, this is, this is really key. I can help someone else. Whether you're a touchy-feely person or not. And you do have to be somebody who knows his presence. Right? But if you said yes to that, then are you willing to help someone? And if you don't feel his presence, if it is more about a rule than a regulation and that kind of thing, I would like someone to help me. Okay? So just check. Which one? Would you like someone to help you? Now, it's getting really good down here. Choose one. I'm in a small group or into a threefold and some other relationship or some other relationship with someone who I believe can help me. In other words, if you just give us all of this stuff and we have to make up who's with who, we're going to have a tough time of it. But if you'll think about it right now, in prayer, if you'll let the Holy Spirit bring to your mind a name of somebody who you think, you know what, I know this person from somewhere, and I kind of think that they could help me get to this place, then write their name down right there. Okay? And if you're someone who's asking for help and you don't know anybody, then by all means, write it down. I don't know who that would be. But I need that. And then I'm going to have you do something that's really cheesy and funky, but I'm going to do it anyway. I agree that I will pursue an intimate walk with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind. And just sign it, would you? Because right now, you can do it because of emotionalism, because of the sermon. But I want you to sign it so that we can say, but you signed it. <laughs> no, I, you know... I want to be able to come back and lovingly say, and then have it in your heart, that I'll give this a try. Now, I think if a small group, if you're in a threefold, if you're in somewhere where you can get this, that's where you should do it. It'll make our life a lot easier. We actually have some chance of it working. But do you see what we're trying to do here? We're trying to go after getting real about having a real walk with the person of Christ, with the person of the Father, with the person of the Holy Spirit. And getting ourselves outside of that other spirit. Because the thing that we learn today is that other spirit is not just neutral. It's not just a lesser form of a godly thing. It's actually an anti-God thing. God has been trying to show us that from the very beginning when he said the law was a tutor to point you to Christ. 